Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, joined as usual by Terry Fakes. We are finishing our last book of the Bible. We've chosen a fitting book to sum up the rest of the canon, and that is the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a pretty deep book, but you're right. It does connect very much all of the Old Testament and brings it to Christ. I think you're right. It's a very good way to connect it. But this book is has a lot of controversy around it in terms of how the church has viewed it and just some unanswered questions about the book itself, its provenance, uh, who wrote it, etc. I think you were telling me there's a, a famous phrase uh, to kind of describe the difficulties in the book of Hebrews. Well, I think maybe the King James, I don't know if it still says this, but I think at one point the King James, maybe the title said something like the epistle uh, from Paul to the Hebrews or something like that. And kind of the general rule of thumb is this probably is not an epistle. It's probably not written by Paul and it's probably not to Hebrew people. And so you get a three strikes on that <laughs> title. Of course, the title is not in the biblical text. The, ti- the title is not right. inspired, but sometimes it, those titles reflect certain ways that people have seen these books throughout history. And even if we didn't come in thinking that it was all those things, that gives us a nice layout to dive into the background of this letter, because as you said, it has been very contested. And in fact, in terms of what book of the Bible has the most contested authorship, Hebrews is definitely up there at the top of the list, if not the top of the right. list. Now, the, the main division of the authorship is, is it written by Paul or was it written by somebody else? And there are certain seasons of church history where people thought, oh, it's definitely written by Paul. Sometimes in the early church, what you get is this was probably written by somebody that knew Paul, a Pauline associate. It is from Paul's band of people, which the chances of that being true are pretty high if it's written to anybody but the church in Jerusalem. I mean, if you think about it, Paul's the one that's doing the majority of the ministry, and he's sending people out to pastor these churches. So the chances of it being a Pauline associate are pretty high. Right. No, I I would agree with that. You know, the early church, because the question would come to the mind, then why then do we think this is authoritative? And just a short version of this, the early church, when they were looking at these letters, had three big criteria. One is, was it apostolic in origin? Could it be traced to an apostle or a close associate of an apostle so that you could see the continuity? Second was what it taught consistent with the rest of the gospel teaching. And third, what did the earliest witnesses think about this, the people that were closest to it? And in all those cases, there's a strong case to be made for Hebrews, and obviously they agreed with it being in the canon. And so I'm comfortable personally with a little uh, lack of certainty around the authorship. But I agree with you. It, it has to be someone that's close to Paul, it seems most likely for a variety of reasons. Well, you may be comfortable with a certain level of uncertainty, but throughout history, people have really wanted to figure out who wrote this book. And <laughs> one of the reasons the Paul authorship has hung around is exactly what you just mentioned. The The criterion for a lot of these books is, was it written by an apostle? And in some of the early copies of the New Testament uh, books that were circulating together, this book was included with Paul's letters. Now you'll see it in the general epistles with things like First and Second Peter, First and Second, Third John. Right, right. It's included in in with James in these general epistles. 
there are some things that make that would make you think that it is not written by Paul. In fact, I would mm-hmm. say nearly every scholar in the last hundred or two hundred years would say it is almost certainly not written by Paul. We may not know who it's going to be written by, who it was written by, but we can we can say almost certainly it wasn't written by Paul. Uh, a couple of reasons for this. First of all, the author, I think the strongest reason it wasn't written by Paul is that the author does not speak with apostolic authority. And what I mean by right. that is he does not speak as an eyewitness, and he does not talk as if he is a uh, apostle. And he says that explicitly in chapter 2, verse 3, that uh, he says, this message has been declared by angels, proved to be reliable. Uh, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. This gives the impression that this is kind of a second-generation Christian, or at least someone who received the teaching from the apostles. Paul spends a lot of time in his letters saying the exact opposite. This is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from man. I was preaching the gospel that I received from Jesus when I came to Jerusalem and talked to the apostles. They didn't add anything to my gospel. So you're thinking in the Corinthian correspondences, in Galatians, this is Paul's own gospel that he received from the Lord Jesus himself. That's why he claims right. apostolic authority. It would be very strange for Paul to say something like this in Hebrews. That, to me, is almost single-handedly enough evidence to say it's not Paul. But there are a couple of other things, too. The writing is not Pauline at all. And I'll say mm-hmm. this stylistically and syntactically. Stylistically, it doesn't have an introduction on it, and it doesn't have the same kind of outro that Paul's letters do. Now, it's possible we don't have the intro, that there was an intro like Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, grace and peace, like he usually does. But we Mm -hmm. don't have it, and uh, there's no real evidence other than an argument from silence that there ever was one. So it seems that that part of it is unpauline. Now, the other thing is, since it doesn't have an intro like that, people have wondered, is this really a letter? Is this right. a uh, letter that was sent somewhere? Or, and I think this may be uh, more likely, was it a sermon of some kind that was given? This it, it reads more like an address that was given orally. And we'll point out some of the reasons why that is in the markers in the text. Uh, but the, the book of Hebrews actually gives an identification for what it is all the way at the end in chapter 13. The author there is talking to the audience And after this long, if it is a letter, long letter, but really more likely an address, which would take you maybe 25 or 30 minutes to give. He says in chapter 13, verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. (laughs) So you say, okay, this has been written down, but it's a word of exhortation, which typically is like a synagogue sermon of a kind. It's an exposition of Old Testament text that seems to fit. There's a lot of exposition in. Uh, This book, you see Paul giving a word of exhortation in synagogues to the Jews when he's asked to speak. This seems to Mm -hmm. fit with the kind of message that you would have given in one of those occasions. And so if we just take Hebrews as a word of exhortation, it's a kind of synagogue sermon, the thing that people would have opened up to the Torah reading for the day and then preached a sermon based on that text, showing how Jesus is the Christ. That's what Paul and his associates would have done. That in and of itself is a very Pauline thing. Right after that, actually, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, and I hope that uh, with whom I hope he will come to you soon. That's another nod towards being in the circle of 
Paul's associates right. is this person knows Timothy now probably isn't Timothy who wrote this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so we've got a genre. It's probably oratory of some kind that's been written down and it doesn't claim apostolic authority. It's kind of a second generation uh, work. The other thing that's really different from so Paul's letters is the way that this is written. This is written in about the highest, most sophisticated Greek in the New Testament. You've got Luke and Acts, and you've got Hebrews that show somebody who has been classically educated in Greek. Mm -hmm. Now, Paul was obviously a Greek speaker. He's a great writer, but he does not write like this. The sentences are not constructed this way. The rhetorical flourishes that this author uses, the kind of seamless passage into another argument— He even plants little things for somebody who's listening. He'll mention Melchizedek in chapter four, but he's not going to talk about him until chapter seven. But he wants to give you a little preview of what's coming. That's a very sophisticated Greek rhetorical trick that if it was Paul, the only way would be somebody who wrote this down, who had formal Greek rhetorical training, took Paul's sermon and wrote it down in Hebrews. And this is actually what many people in the early church thought. That would be the only way that it could be Paul. So you've got those three big things that make us think this probably isn't Paul. But of course, it's theologically relatively aligned with everything we see in Paul. It takes a few different metaphors and uses a few different passages of Scripture, but it's theologically in line. It is Mm -hmm. part of the earliest witness of the canon. There's no question about that, but doesn't look like it was written by Paul. Yeah, and I would agree with everything you said. I, I also don't think it was written by Paul. I do think it carries a certain uh, authority from Paul because I think it's someone in his circle. And I, I have a candidate to nominate for you. I was going to say, I find we myself, have to guess who it is. So go ahead and give us okay. uh, give us your endorsement for who would have written this. I'm going to I'm going to endorse a candidate at this point. I know that there have been many people mentioned an unnamed follower of Paul, and that's possible. Uh, Tertullian in 225 said it was Barnabas. I'm going to go with Martin Luther himself, and I'm going to nominate Apollos of Alexandria. We know Apollos from the book of Acts that he was a convert. He was from Alexandria, Egypt. He knows the the text, the the scriptures tell us that he was well-versed in the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament. So he knew them very well. He knew them probably in Greek. And I think the quotations of these Old Testament passages are from the Greek version of the Old Testament. He, very learned, he was uh, referred to as being a better preacher than Paul, a better orator. Paul didn't take a lot of pride in his oratory. It was in the power of what he said, but uh, that Apollos is a good orator. And all that comes together to say, Apollos learned the full gospel from uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who were students of Paul. And I think Paul refers to Apollos. In other words, I think there's a connection there, that Apollos was a preacher who relied and owed a lot to Paul. But he does seem to have the characteristics of the speaker or writer of the book of Hebrews. So obviously, I can't be certain. But I think if I were going to name someone we know from the New Testament, Apollos seems like a really good candidate to me. I cannot dispute that. I think if you look for somebody that has all the qualities you would want and even some of the deficiencies you would want. So you mentioned a really uh, intriguing and clever point about 
the way that these quotations are structured, it's almost like somebody that didn't know as much of the original Hebrew, but had only read the Greek translations. That mm-hmm. seems to fit Apollos. I mean, he's a Greek, he's sophisticated rhetorically, seems like he would have the horsepower and the network to, to write something like this. Uh, but but since I can't pick the same one that you picked, uh, some some people have, and this is very popular right now, is to say that, well, since we don't know who wrote it, it must be a woman that wrote the book of Hebrews. And while that is an intriguing possibility, and there are certainly people in the New Testament that would have been capable of writing this, people think maybe Priscilla wrote it. Right. She's the one that rebuked Apollos. Maybe she wrote it. Maybe Phoebe wrote it. She was delivering mm-hmm. and uh, explaining the letter to the Romans, most likely in a cohort. Uh, maybe she wrote. Of course, anytime anything's mentioned, Mary Magdalene gets mentioned because why not Mary Magdalene? I mean, she's <laughs> why she's not? always yeah, mentioned exactly. in conversations like this. I don't think she has the credentials necessarily, but those other two might. And there's no reason from an academic or a rhetorical standpoint that it couldn't be a woman who wrote this. I will say the thing that makes me think that it probably wasn't a woman is all the reflexive pronouns in Hebrews are right. masculine. So th- this is a big difference between Greek and English. All reflexive pronouns, like I say, myself, there's a way of saying myself that's masculine and a way of saying myself that's feminine. And all the reflexive pronouns uh, are masculine in the book in Hebrews. But uh, those are really intriguing possibilities. If it's not Apollos and we know who it is, see, that's the thing. It's It could be someone we don't even know. But if it's somebody right. that we do know and it's not Apollos, then I'm going to cast my vote for Barnabas because Barnabas was obviously a close associate with Paul, with Timothy. He was a Levite, which would give insight into mm-hmm. how this argument is structured, why it's concerned with Jesus being a true and better high priest and sacrifice. Right. So that would have been on his mind because that's his heritage. I would say the downside with Barnabas is Barnabas probably grew up uh, learning the original Hebrew uh, rather than receiving top-notch rhetorical training. But if there's somebody, he might be a a decent guess. But we really don't know. But I think those are several very possible possible guesses. So to understand the flow of the book of Hebrews, if if there's one thing that most people know about Hebrews, it's the true and better. So Jesus is yeah. a true and better Moses. He's a true and better high priest. He is a true and better messenger than even the angels mm-hmm. is how the book opens. And it's easy right. to get brought into that. And, and in fact, I think I've probably even taught it this way before. It's great to get into all the parallels between the Old Testament and Jesus is true and greater. And then to get to the end and say, so what? He's right. better than those things. So what, right. what does that have to do with anything? So to really understand what the author is arguing through this long, the longest sustained argument in the New Testament, actually, from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 12, this long, advanced, uh, very concatenated argument, what Mm -hmm. is he trying to prove? You know, that's what we really have to step back and say is, what's the effect of the letter to the Hebrews or of this sermon word of exhortation that is Hebrews. And in order to understand that, we might need to step back a little bit and say, what from the letter do we know about the audience? What do we know about the people that uh, he's writing to? What do we know about the situation that might be going on? So if we were to construct a little bit of what's going on in this church and who these people are, where would we start? Uh, That's a great question. I, I think the argument tells you a lot 
because of what he doesn't say. In other words, why would you spend 12 chapters talking about the supremacy of Christ to every other uh, religious model unless your audience was being tempted and pulled to uh, depart the true faith and was being pulled towards some other model? And mm-hmm. the nature of the argument, to me, Cole says, he's talking about the angels, the law, and Moses, and the law of Moses, and the high priests as guides. It seems to me he's writing to Jewish Christians, or Christians who had a Jewish background, and who might be most tempted to return to some kind of, uh, I think you phrased it this way, a religion based on tradition, some kind of observance, some kind of merit-based righteousness. So I I think we can infer that the audience was being tempted in that direction because of the argument he's making. Exactly. That we you have to get that to understand why the author argues the way that he does. Why does he warn them? Why does he use these examples? Why does he structure his argument the way he does? Well, it's because you have a a group of likely second generation Christians who mm-hmm. have encountered some persecution They've seen their loved ones pass away in Christ, and things just aren't quite as exciting as they used to be. I mean, you have all this energy. Paul is planting churches. The whole world is coming to know Christ. There's all kinds of excitement. And then after that, you know, maybe we're looking at 70s, 80s. Things have kind of settled into normal everyday life, and it's not quite as exciting as it used to be. And what you're seeing is the people are getting a little less spiritually alive. They're becoming dull, he says at one point. They are hard of hearing spiritually. Mm -hmm. They are backsliding, as we would say, into their old ways or really just into a spiritual apathy and lethargy, not meeting together as much as they used to, not putting as much time and energy into the fellowship as they were doing early in the church. And so what you have is uh, an audience, a church who needs to be jolted back. It reminds me of Jesus talking to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. They're a church that has lost right. their first love. They haven't, they, they're not really succumbing to false teaching. There's one short mention that false teaching might be coming in the book of Hebrews, but unlike most of Paul's letters, This is not a polemic against false teaching. It's a polemic against not living what these people actually believe. And so they need a jolt. They need somebody to bring them back into their first love. And uh, the argument is structured in such a way to warn them not to fall away. And the two keys to this, if you're looking in the text for places where you see this, the two clearest places are in chapter 2, verse 1 which says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And we're going to come back, actually, to chapter one and talk about the little mini argument that takes place in chapter one, one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament, and why it leads up to this warning of, we have got to pay closer attention, lest we drift away from it. That's kind of the first insight. And then in in chapter two, verses eight and nine, and the second half of chapter eight, I think, is one of the most pastoral verses in the New Testament. It's relatable. Everybody has been through a season like this. You have this great first part that Jesus is exalted. He's higher than the angels. He is Lord over Mm -hmm. all, and everything is in subjection to him. Nothing is left outside his control. And then if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you ask the same thing that the author asks on behalf of the audience, which is, 
But at present, we don't see everything subjected to him. You know, so right. I mean, it's one thing to say on Sunday, everything is subjected to him. But then on Monday to be like, but it sure doesn't look like everything is subjected to him. And the right. space between those two statements is where you could find a lot of Christian frustration and disappointment. And one of the things the author is going to do in the book of Hebrews then and now for people who are wondering this very same thing is he is going to say, well, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And this is where the argument really mm -hmm. takes off. How was this lowly savior exalted and given all things? And how will we follow if we don't fall away, if we don't become hard of hearing? So right. this background situation about these readers and the church that is being addressed really help us to understand why the argument is structured the way it is and what the impact is. Why does it matter right. that Jesus is greater than the angels? Well, because we have a greater message than the people of the Old Testament did. Why, why does it matter these are better high priests? Well, because we have a better intercession than anybody right. in history has ever had. We have a more faithful, available high priest interceding constantly. And so he's going to be with us so we don't fall away. So it, the argument makes a lot more sense when you know the context of who it's being written to and what they're going through. Well, and I, I agree with that. And I think it's the reason that I find this letter so practically applicable. Now, that requires a little explanation because it does get into Old Testament ideas. But think about it this way, because I think we've all experienced this. You, here you have a second generation group of people who haven't lost their faith, but they've been tempted. And I love the verse, uh, chapter two, verse one. He said, pay close attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. Mm. And you know what? We all have that experience. When we first came to Christ, we were on fire. We were high energy. Now, fast forward in our lives into the day to day, month to month, year to year living. It's not that we've departed from faith in Christ, but we too can drift. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we we get pulled by the culture. You know, we get pulled by the activities and the busyness or the material needs. You know, we do have to pay a mortgage and things like that. And I think in the book of Hebrews, what makes it hard is he's arguing th against their immediate needs. And that is Christ is better than the observance of the law. Christ is better than any other authority. To translate that to us, he might say to us, Christ is better than any material promises that you could have. Christ is better than any other thing you can place your trust in. So I think if we can get past some of the language here and understand it a little better, we can see ourselves in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the best example practically of that point in this letter is in chapter 10 where he's reminding them, he says, recall in the former days when you, after you were enlightened, after you came to know the gospel, you endured hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners mm -hmm. with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Yeah. So th this is speaking exactly to that, the, the phases and the seasons that everyone goes through where your faith is dull, your heart is hard, your Savior is small, your life is mm -hmm. not as meaningful as it used to be, God doesn't seem as near. 
And so this author is saying, hey, remember what it was like when you realize the magnitude of the Savior and the gospel that you believe. And uh, what will it take for us to get back to that place? Well, it's going to take a vision, a greater vision of the Savior that we serve and the God who's provided and the plan that God is working out in the world. We need to be reminded of that. Uh, In fact, the only real rebuke in the book, there are warnings all over the place that we'll talk about because those can be theologically kind Mm -hmm. of challenging. The only real rebuke in the book is after the first phase of the argument. So if we go from chapter one, Jesus is a greater messenger. Chapter two, like we just talked about, we cannot drift away. Jesus is greater than Moses. He is uh, a better high priest in chapter four. Then all of a sudden in chapter five, in verse 11, about this, this is such a great rhetorical technique. So like I said, what he's going to do in chapter five is he's going to drop a little bit of a hint about what's to come. So he's talking about Jesus being a high priest, and he goes through in chapter four and in the beginning of chapter five, talking about, you know, every human high priest has to offer sacrifices for their own (laughs) sins. And they're appointed (laughs) for their lifetime, but then they die and you have to replace them with somebody else. And it says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, and he learned obedience through what he suffered, being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who will obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You're like, how did Melchizedek get into this discussion? Okay, there <laughs> who is, is this there guy? <laughs> are few more obscure people in the Old Testament than Melchizedek, and what this author is doing, and this is a this is a really fantastic Greek rhetorical technique, is he's going to drop that Melchizedek reference both in verse six and in verse ten to just whet your appetite a little bit, and what he's going to do in between is in verse eleven he's going to go into a practical warning. To people. So he says basically, and you can hear somebody doing this. Really good preachers have a way of doing this today, getting you really eager to hear what they're about to say. He says, he was perfect like Melchizedek. And then listen, listen what he says in verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. It's one of those like, oh, it's gonna, it's he just he's like Melchizedek, which I would love to explain to you, but uh, I don't know. I don't know if I can explain to you. You become kind of hard of hearing. I don't know if I can (laughs) go on about Melchizedek. And so he goes into this warning, and you should be teachers, but you Uh need to be taught. And you need milk, but not solid food. And so he's talking about them growing up and let let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ going on to maturity in chapter six. And you get a real stark warning in this this section in verse four. It is impossible— in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift that shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So let's put the theological issue with this passage on, on the side for a minute and just say, this is a dire warning to people. He says, I want to go on and explain the next part of this to you. But I can't go on and do that until you realize there are some major things threatening your faith. Acting like you can be forgiven and then and participate in the church and see the gifts of the Holy Spirit manifested in your body. And then all of a Mm -hmm. sudden to live like that never happened puts your soul in real danger. 
in real danger. In fact, I think there's a good connection here. Maybe one of the ways that we understand this theologically, there's a great connection here with what Jesus talks about in the unforgivable sin. The people get all wrapped around the axle. What is the unforgivable sin and have I committed it? Which is a real, a real fear. But the unforgivable sin Jesus talks about is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the blasphemy mm-hmm. of the work of the Spirit and attributing that to the devil is what the people that Jesus is talking to are doing. And some people have generalized that into talking about really the thing that will not be forgiven, whether it's that particular instance that Jesus is referring to with the scribes and Pharisees, or just in general is if you continually resist the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your heart, then at some point you can no longer hear the conviction of the Mm -hmm. Holy Spirit. And if you do not repent and turn to Christ, and you do not heed the call of the Holy Spirit, then your sins won't be forgiven because you're not a Christian. You won't be in Christ. And so what this author is pushing towards is the same thing that Paul would say, make your calling and election sure by living out your faith. Faith is proved through good fruit. And if you have a life of at one point you called out to God and maybe went to church for a while, but then Mm -hmm. never bore any fruit, and you're not following him and you're not walking with him. What this person, what the, what the author of Hebrews is saying is there is real sign of trouble for your soul. And so this is a very serious warning to the church who is on the verge of slipping and sliding away, proving that they're really not in Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the great fear, I think, that he has and the great warning to them. But you're right. The rhetoric there is brilliant. In fact, there are several. If we go back to the chapter one and start walking through this a little bit, the one thing I wanted to point out is that in chapter one, before he begins the argument of how Jesus is better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the high priest. In fact, he's more on the level of this shadowy character, Melchizedek. Before he begins that, he starts with just a brief uh, verse here of who Jesus is. And listen to this. This is chapter one, verse three. He says, now he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. Now, verse three. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, and Jesus upholds the universe by his powerful word. He doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but if you just think about what he's saying there, that is so far above our comprehension. And one of the words in there has always struck me when he says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. That Greek word for imprint is our word character. He has the exact character of God. And that word in its uh, original meaning refers to, if you think about somebody who's working with jewelry, say, in metal, and you take the the sharp instrument and you're going to basically carve a design into a ring or into the gold or the metal of the ring. That's what that word refers to, that inscribing a design into metal, that word character. And so that's a great translation. Jesus is the exact imprint. He is the etching of the very nature of God. And so he doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but the words that he uses are so eloquent and so beautiful. I've come back to that verse many times just to remind myself of the unbelievable supremacy of Jesus Christ. 
Absolutely. That opening paragraph is one of the most powerful, beautiful paragraphs in the New Testament. And it builds up to this point that if he is so much greater than they are, he has a message that is greater than they had. There's an understanding in the book of Hebrews that the old covenant was mediated by angels. And there's reasons to believe that that's true from the Old Testament, and especially some of the things that are written in between the Testaments about how the covenant Mm -hmm. was given. And so the author is basically saying, if Jesus is this great and he is the one who has given us this message, how much greater is the message and how much better, how much much greater responsibility do we have with this better message to heed it and to listen to it and not to fall away? It's a it's a great way for him to start out by getting their attention and saying this is really serious. So you have these warnings like you mentioned and like we talked about in chapter five and six throughout. In fact, you have three big sections of warnings, chapter five and six, chapter 10, verse 26 and chapter 12, verses 16 through 17. And these are interspersed with his argument in such a way that if you read this out loud, it would be every five or six minutes or even seven or eight minutes. Mm -hmm. He reminds them again, this kind of pastoral burden that he has for them. And he's going to go back to making this argument about who Jesus is, why we can trust him, what he's done for us. And then don't forget, do not fall away from this message. So he's, he's utilizing some really great techniques. And when he comes back to Melchizedek in chapter six, he's talked about Abraham and the promise that God has made. And he says, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, is the way the chapter seven starts. So you see this rhetorical technique. He's, he said, Melchizedek, who I don't think I can really tell you about him because you guys are hard of hearing. <laughs> and then it's kind of like, all right, I'll tell you about him. So this Melchizedek, and he goes into chapter seven. Give us a little... A framework for understanding why is Melchizedek in the center of Hebrews? Because this is really the middle point of the argument in the book of Hebrews. It centers around Jesus being like Melchizedek, a king, a priest, the same order as he is. Do you get all of seven, which is a comparison? Going on into chapter eight, he is a better high priest and a better covenant, making a better offering. Why why utilize Melchizedek in this passage, and what do we need to know about him to understand it? Well, great question. I'll let you weigh in, too. But if you just remember, Melchizedek is a shadowy figure that comes out of nowhere and then lies dormant until Hebrews chapter uh, 7, where he's brought back up as a way— of making sense out of what happened. So if you remember, after Abraham has conquered, uh, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, comes out and Abraham gives him tithes. And you think, what's going on here? Why, Why is Abraham offering to him? And so then off it goes, and you see this Melchizedek as a shadowy figure. Now, his name is important. In Hebrew, there are no written vowels, and so words uh, are pronounced with vowels, but they're not written with vowels. And so the word for king has consonants M, L, K. So Melech is the word for king. Well, think about Melchizedek and think about it being two words, Melchi. Think you can hear the M, the L, and the K. And so part of his name means king. And then the second half, Zedek is a Z and a D and a K. 
That's another Hebrew word, which means righteousness or a righteous person, a tzaddik or tzedek. So Melchizedek literally means the righteous king or a king of righteousness. Now, stop and think about that for a second. If you've got a shadowy figure in the Old Testament who's going to come out and make an appearance and not show up again till the New Testament, and his name means the king of righteousness, boy, you would expect to see him being somehow a forerunner of the true king of righteousness, Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so I think the writer of Hebrews pulls him out and says, do you remember this guy? And they're like, yeah, we've always wondered about him. Uh, why did Abraham give tithe to him? You know, in some sense, he was greater even than Abraham. And now he makes an argument and says, yes, Jesus is like this king of righteousness, Melchizedek. It's sort of a mm -hmm. clincher of his argument for them. But what would you add to that? Yeah, that's exactly why he needs to bring him in here is because he's the only person that you could really compare Jesus to in terms of his kingdom, his priesthood. Uh, he is the he is the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. He is a messianic mm -hmm. figure. You know, Abraham blesses him because he's greater right. than Abraham and uh, Jesus is greater than Abraham. And that might be some of the mental connection there is if Jesus is greater uh -huh. than Abraham, the only person we really have in scripture who's greater than Abraham is Melchizedek. Uh, he's like it in the sense that he has no parents. He doesn't have a beginning and an end. But mm -hmm. the other thing is there's a, there's a little bit of a theological problem with the whole argument of the book of Hebrews if you don't bring in Melchizedek, because what the author is going to talk about is Jesus is a better high priest of a better covenant, who's making a better sacrifice than what they had in the Old Testament. That is all well and good, but what the Jewish readers would have said is, how can Jesus be a high priest? Because Jesus right. is not a Levite. In right. fact, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, which is the kingly tribe. So we're great with Jesus being a king. How can Jesus be a high priest if he's not a Levite? And what this exactly. author's point to is he's saying, you know, there is a higher an older priesthood than the priesthood of the Levites. The Levites became priests because God set aside the firstborn. That is the Lord's. The firstborn of everything is the Lord's. But in terms of people, he has set aside a whole tribe of Levi mm -hmm. so that they will be like the firstborn on behalf of the people. And they will tend to the temple, the tabernacle. They will be the people that go and intercede for the people before God. But before that, there were priests, and one of them, actually the greatest of them, is Melchizedek. And there's an order of priesthood that is descending from Melchizedek, of which Jesus is the primary and chief member. He is a priest of a priesthood that supersedes the Levites. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so that's another thing I would add is there is a little bit of a... a a part of the argument that somebody would say, I don't know how that exactly fits with Jesus being a priest right. and all, because Jesus isn't a Levite. And he says, well, priesthood didn't start with the Levites. Priesthood after the order of Melchizedek is a higher priesthood. That's the kind of priest that Jesus is. Yeah, that's exactly right. That is such a clincher of an argument. In chapter 7, where he's talking about Melchizedek, in verse 15 and 16, this is going to make a lot of sense now that you've explained that. Listen to what uh, he says. He says, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, 
someone who's become a priest, not on the basis of bodily descent, meaning not because he was born of the tribe of Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life. In right. other words, he is hearkening back to an older, greater priesthood that's not based on descent lineage. It's based on that indestructible life. You're right, Cole. This is sort of the clincher of that argument for a Jewish mind. Right. So you have the argument coming through. He is this kind of priest. He is offering a greater sacrifice, which is his own body. You get this wonderful picture in chapter 10 of, and this is the culmination of, of most of this argument saying, Jesus is a high priest who offers himself as the perfect sacrifice. This, again, is something that is not very Pauline. I'm not saying that Paul didn't think this or that he never taught this, but we don't have this same line of argument or same kind of atonement in Paul's letters. This is different. It's a different way of understanding what Jesus was doing. He is offering himself as a sacrifice and as the priest. So it's almost as if the picture that's painted at the end of chapter 10 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that's the holy of holies, by the yeah. blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, which is his through his through his flesh. So the picture is Jesus taking the sacrifice, which is himself, going into the holy of holies because he is a high priest, putting himself up on the altar of the mercy seat and giving right. up his life on behalf of everyone else. He's doing this not in the earthly temple. He's doing this in the heavenly temple. So you see all through uh, the book of Hebrews, you get this nice parallelism between there's an earthly temple that was patterned after a heavenly temple. And Jesus right. offers himself as he dies on earth. He's offering himself in the heavenly temple so that a new and living way will open. And we have a forever high priest over the household of God. And let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance because of this sacrifice that's been made. And with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised, i.e. Jesus not being a fallible and mortal mm -hmm. priest like the Levites, he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another for love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this is kind of part one wrapped up of this priest, sacrifice, heavenly temple, making an offering for us so that we can forever have access to God, and we forever have a faithful high priest. This is a really tremendous, monumental point in Hebrews, but it's not even the apex of the argument yet. This is just like K2. We haven't gotten to Everest yet. This is just one of the peaks that is near there. <laughs> well, and you know, as as chapter seven, just as we move on, I think it's really interesting. In chapter seven, he makes this argument you've talked about of Jesus being a forever priest. He's a better high priest. And then he rolls right into chapter eight and says what you alluded to. He's also the priest of a better covenant mm. with God than the covenant that came through that. And he quotes in there that beautiful passage out of Jeremiah 31, which if you think about it as a Jew, you read this passage and you think, oh, there's a better covenant that's coming than the one we have. And he's going to argue Jesus is ushering in that covenant by quoting Jeremiah 31. 
You know, what's interesting about this quotation is this is the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament, the mm-hmm. longest you know, continuous passage of Scripture that's quoted from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And people have debated that the style of interpretation is kind of what we would consider expository preaching. It's right. They, the Jews would have considered it midrash, where you're taking right. a you're taking a passage of Scripture and expanding it, retelling it, uh, putting it into the right context. People have discussed what passage is this a midrash of, and this mm-hmm. is the central passage. Like I said, it's the longest one. I think it's, you know, if they were going to have a temple reading that day, what was the reading? You know, th- this makes a lot of sense for being that passage. But I always mm-hmm. like to point out in the book of Hebrews how many times Psalm one ten is quoted in the book of Hebrews. In fact, this is a little bit of trivia uh, that's really counterintuitive. And I think this actually might challenge a little bit the way we teach the relationship between the Testament and the New Testament. The most quoted passage in the New Testament from the Old Testament is, or the most quoted chapter, I'll say, is Psalm 110. Mm -hmm. It's quoted Mm -hmm. all over the place. It's quoted like seven times in the book of Hebrews, but it's quoted in Acts, Mm -hmm. it's quoted in some of the epistles, it's quoted in the Gospels. It, it was a very defining passage for the New Testament church. Now, what's really interesting about it is that's where Melchizedek is mentioned. So Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis. Right. Melchizedek is mentioned in Psalm 110. Melchizedek is mentioned in Hebrews. And that's about it. That's but it. I think yeah. if we were to pick a, a passage that, uh, that the author of Hebrews has in mind for why he's arguing what he's arguing in this book— Psalm 110's got to be there as well. So you have Jeremiah, you have Psalm 110. Mm-hmm. Of course, you got quotes from Exodus and all other all other kinds of places here. But those are the two mm-hmm. pillars that he's building his sermon on in Hebrews. Now, probably the passage that people are most familiar with, unless it's the word of God being a double-edged sword, uh, is chapter uh-huh. 11, which is the hall of faith. Right. The Hall of Faith takes up the argument of Jesus being the high priest and begins to talk about what it means to actually trust in that and to walk in that. And you get almost a shorthand of the entire Old Testament story of all of these people who trusted and walked by faith, and they didn't quite see what they were hoping for in their lifetime. But now we get to see it because the promises of faith are summed up in Christ. And so you start out with this really famous passage quoted all the time as a definition of faith, chapter 11, one. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. That's a great summary of faith. And he's going to go on to tell a dozen stories or so of people who walked by faith. Right. Who didn't see the end of their faith, but were faithful in their actions. Trusting, the essence of faith is trusting in what you can't see. You know, a lot of times when I pray, I'll I'll pray to God and I'll say, you know, God, I cannot see around this corner. I cannot see very far down this road of life, but you see all those things. And when we pray, it's also an expression of trusting God to see down this road and do what is best. And I think as we we too can live this out exactly the way these heroes of the faith lived it out. That's that's a good encouragement for us to, to take from this Hall of Faith. It's not like, oh, well, these these people were all all stars and we could never measure up. It's that same prayer right. that they were praying, that we're praying today, that God would help us to see his promises come true. And that, you know, like you said, walking by faith, 
we actually will see God come through in ways that we never would have been able to pray for. We're just praying that he does what only he can do in our lives. Right. Exactly. And then, you know, to me, I, I I don't like that uh, chapter break at 12, simply because it, you want to see this whole chapter 11 talking about these faithful people. He now is going to turn it back to reinforce what you've been talking about. He says to them, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these people he just got through talking about, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the rates that is set before us looking to Jesus, which as you describe these people, and I think rightly so, they're, they're just tired. They're a little disillusioned. They're being tempted to maybe, you know, grab onto something else. And here he is after he's given this great hall of faith. He says, now, given that that's who came before you, let's reinvigorate ourselves by setting right. aside the sin that so easily wants to entangle us. It's again, a very pastoral uh, admonition or encouragement. Absolutely. And I want to make a connection for people between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, like you said, because the last person in the hall of faith is Jesus. So what 12.1 means is being surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses doesn't mean people who are witnessing us. So it's, it's not like, hey, people are watching, so be on your best behavior. Although this right. passage is sometimes taught that way. This, that's really not what this passage means, because otherwise the next part makes no sense at all as to why right. he would say that. It's not positive peer pressure. You know, people are going to think poorly of you up in heaven if you don't do the right thing. What he's saying is these people are witnesses to us. So we look at their life and we see living, hoping in God never puts people to shame. These people are witnesses right. of walking by faith. And actually, he says, if we're going to look at any witness, then look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, right? So Jesus didn't experience all of the fullness of the promise that God had over his life and through him, everyone else, until he went to the cross and died and rose again. And then he saw mm -hmm. God make good on his word. So in the hall of faith, the the lead person to look to is Jesus, who the joy set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's how we know that God keeps his promises, is we look at Abraham, we look at David, we look at Moses, we look at all these mm -hmm. people, but chiefly we look to Christ, who when things looked like it was going as poorly as it could possibly go on the cross— was all part of God's plan to fulfill his promise and raise him up and see him above all authorities, all mm -hmm. powers to be the king over the kingdom of God forever. And a great high priest who's interceding for us. And so there's a connection there with the hall of faith. Jesus really is the preeminent example of everything the author is talking about. And it's with that framework that he's going to close the argument at the end of chapter 12. So we're going all the way back to chapter one, when he says in 1225, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This is just an right. amazing rhetorical technique here. It's like when you start a sermon with something, and then at the very end, you come back and show how it's tied everything back together. At the beginning, we had Jesus, who is higher than the angels, greater messenger. He has spoken to us mm -hmm. through his son now, 
and we have got to listen to him. Chapter two, verse one. Well, now that we've had all of these chapters of talking about who Jesus is, he is trustworthy. Here's what he's done for us. Here's his plan in history. And we have come, it says, not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, right? Mount Zion is the mountain of the Lord. Now, Mount Zion is also the mountain on which Jesus is crucified. You take the whole right. ridge together. Mount Zion to the uh-huh. city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to be sprinkled and, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. To that Jesus. See that mm-hmm. you do not refuse him who is speaking, right? This is just a masterful argument here. After all these chapters, the climax of this argument is it's like you're at a Mount Sinai again when the commandments were mm-hmm. given, but it's a better mountain. And it's like you're right. getting that covenant with God, but it's a better covenant. And it's like Moses is coming down, right. but it's a better Moses. And it's like the priests have interceded for the people and their sins have been forgiven, but it's a better priest. And it's like the angels are speaking on behalf of God, but it's somebody even better than the angels. And it's a message that's even better. So make sure you do not neglect this moment and this message. That is an incredible argument. That is like, wow, the way you summarize that. And if I'm listening to this or reading this, you know what I'm thinking and I'm sitting on the fence and I'm a little tired and I'm busy and I'm maybe flirting with some other, you know, uh, security blankets and other things. I hear that and I go, what was I thinking to even consider putting my trust and hope in anything but Jesus Christ? I mean, this is a brilliant sermon because mm-hmm. that's what I'm thinking when I get to the end of that is how could I have ever considered putting my trust in anything else? Yeah, I mean, listen to the way that he wraps up this final line. This this catches us. We use this phrase, but not in the same way. If that's what he's been saying, he says, therefore, verse 28 of chapter 12, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Now, I'll make one little side comment here that we don't know this because we're not 100% sure where and when this Hebrews was written. But there's reason to think from this passage and a couple of comments earlier in the book that he's referring to the prophecy of Haggai that the temple is going to be or that the world is going to be shaken and only the things that are eternal are going to remain. But some scholars have speculated that he's actually referring back to an earthquake that may have shaken the town that this is written to or preached in. Mm. Because a couple Mm -hmm. of times he says, there are some things that can never be shaken. Even when the whole world is shaking, there are some things that cannot be shaken. And here he says, therefore, let us be grateful for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And I don't know if that's right. I, I don't know if that's, if we're supposed to read that as a historical event, but can you imagine the, the power of a sermon like this? after a tragedy like that. I mean, this, right. this if that is in the background, this is just another piece of the masterful sermon that this author gave to this group of people. So maybe you add that pastoral burden in the background mm. towards everything else. That I just think 
there are some scholars that think that's what's going on here. And I think if that's true, that's really interesting. I'm not sure it's true, but it's very intriguing. Well, and, you know, kind of coming, that brings us kind of to the end. And honestly, this closes with one of the, I mean, the, the letters of Paul have beautiful benedictions in them, but this has one of the most beautiful benedictions as well. And it follows that in format. Right before in the last couple of verses, he greets some people. He closes it all up as though coming to a pinnacle of all of his argument. He says in chapter 13, verse 20, Now may the God of peace, think Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of peace. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Just a beautiful doxology. Can't top that doxology. I mean, there are some really beautiful ones in the New Testament, but that one is just such an amazing ending to this to this book of Hebrews. And it reminds us, one of the things that the book of Hebrews does is it sums up the entire message of the Bible. Every piece of the Bible is important because it points to this message about Christ being the right. true and greater, being worth holding on to, God's final word to us. The message of the book of Hebrews, and this is one of the reasons we saved Hebrews to the very end of our book overviews, is you need to understand the whole scope of what God's doing. Throughout history, throughout the Bible, throughout Israel and the church, all coming together in Christ so that now we know the same exhortation that the author of Hebrews is giving is true eternally. Do not neglect this Savior, this high priest, this message, this covenant, because this is the summation of God's word for his people forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. We'll be right back.